Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. And last week we left you on a bit of a cliffhanger where we said we were going to talk about what happens with head and neck cancer when it recurs or metastasizes and you have to treat it in the palliative setting, which unfortunately is a reality for a significant number of our patients. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I'm joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Josh Hurwitz. How are you doing? Very well, Michael. Thanks again for the introduction. Yes, head and neck is one of those ongoing challenges that we face here in oncology, but I think it will be an interesting debate of what we have in store today. Absolutely, and it'll be doubly interesting because we have our third musketeer back for the second time, mainly because you guys as well missed his sultry tones, and that's the one, the only Dr. Andrew Jensen. Andrew, we are thrilled to have you back. Thanks so much for uh, having me back, guys. Like we said, we're going to talk about advanced or metastatic head and neck squamous cell cancer and the management thereof. Josh is going to discuss the extreme study, which is not as extreme as some of the other things we use for uh, anti-cancer therapy, but is the study of chemotherapy plus cetuximab. And I'm going to discuss the logical next step, which is that of chemotherapy plus IO. I was I was very nice this week and I gave Michael the immunotherapy trial. Yeah, because uh, Josh has been hogging the immunotherapy trials in recent history. Before we get down to brass tacks, Andrew has very kindly prepared a slight introduction and he's going to be peppering us with questions and keeping us on the straight and narrow this week. But Andrew, would you like to tell our lovely listeners about advanced or metastatic head and neck cancer and all of the various pearls you've been able to dig up? Straight and narrow indeed. Um, So with a topic like this, I think it's important to give a bit of background information for those who aren't as familiar. When we say head and neck cancer, we're talking about a variety of different cancers arranged by anatomical location. So we're talking oral cavity, nasopharynx, oropharynx, hypopharynx, larynx, nasal cavity, and uh, salivary gland cancers all grouped into one. And Something that's similar for a lot of these cancers uh, is that uh, the majority of them tend to be squamous cell carcinomas. Um, For the purposes of the trials mentioned by Josh and Mike, they won't be talking about, in particular, nasopharyngeal cancers um, or the salivary gland cancers, but this will still make up the majority of what you might see. This is a rare group of cancer. This is info taken from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare from last year. And head and neck cancers made up to 3.2% of all new cancer diagnoses and 2.5% of all cancer deaths. Um, so not common, but um, certainly significant. About 5,000 new diagnoses were made for 2022. Uh, and there's a male predisposition with uh, three quarters of those new diagnoses being male. Uh, something to note is that the management of these cancers require quite complex multidisciplinary input a lot of the time. Um, And it's well known internationally that the management of these conditions are typically recommended to be done in high volume centers just because of the complex nature, the kind of decisions that need to be made, the multidisciplinary input, it all factors together. Uh, And while the survival for early stage disease can be quite good, unfortunately, two-thirds, the majority of patients who are diagnosed are diagnosed with advanced stage disease, so stage three or stage four. And when they do, they frequently metastasize to the cervical lymph nodes. Um, There's significant morbidity and 
early mortality associated particularly with those with uh, disease recurrence. And so for that reason, this is an area of need and it's good to see that we've got trials coming out um, in particular with the immunotherapy, although I suppose it's not that new now. A few other things of note, just to mention, there there are some risk factors associated with these cancers. So what would commonly be associated with cancers, things like smoking and alcohol. Also, head and neck cancers can be associated with viral infections. Um, now, I did say we're not going to go too deep into nasopharyngeal cancers, so I'm just mentioning uh, EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, just to say that that is a significant consideration for that subgroup. Uh, but also the human papillomavirus HPV, hepatitis C, HIV, prior radiation exposure, and depending on where you are in the world, betel nut chewing and a few other more out there risk factors are associated. Betel nut chewing for head and neck cancer is like the scorpion sting of pancreatitis, isn't it? It always gets pulled up. You have to you have to mention yeah. it. <laughs> in summary, this is uh, a cancer where it often presents in the in the late stage, and unfortunately that means poor outcomes for our patients. Um, these can be quite complex, and to make matters worse, they've grouped a whole lot of different complex cancers under one banner, but we're here to try and do our best to talk about that today. So I think we'll start with Josh and the trial that he's going to talk about. Would you like to start it, Josh? Thanks so much for that wonderful introduction on the topic, Andrew. I'm going to be taking us back in time, way back in time to 2008, where Immunotherapy was naught but a distant dream for many of us here in the land down under. The trial is called Platinum-Based Chemotherapy Plus Cetuximab in Head and Neck Cancer. So at the time of writing, cisplatin and carboplatin were the heavy hitters. They were the first-line treatment for inoperable recurrent and metastatic squamous cell carcinomas of the head and neck. This is now not the case, as our lovely Michael will then talk about moving forward, but I'll let him do all that fun exploring. So head and neck cancers often express other receptors, including epidermal growth factor receptors, also known as EGFR. You might remember this from such wonderful topics, including that of lung cancer and our bowel cancer episode in the past. The thing with this, this expression is that it is, it is often associated with a poor outcome. Cetuximab, for those that don't remember or weren't with us back then, it's an IgG1 monoclonal antibody that inhibits ligand binding to the EGFR and stimulates antibody-dependent cell-mediated toxicity. So as a summary, it's good for killing cells. So moving, moving forward, what, what is this trial asking? So the question it is asking is if you give a platinum like cisplatin or carboplatin plus fluorouracil and cetuximab, does this improve outcomes in the first line setting for metastatic, metastatic or recurrent squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck? The primary endpoint for this trial was overall survival and the secondary endpoints, there's quite a few of them, but progression-free survival, best overall response, disease control, time to treatment failure and duration of response. The important exclusion criteria is really that patients who have relapsed within six months were excluded, and also those with nasopharyngeal carcinomas were also excluded. The treatment schedule, you're given cisplatin or potentially carboplatin plus fluorouracil every three weeks, and then cetuximab ongoing. Maximum of six cycles of chemotherapy were given, and usually they had a CT scan every six weeks. 
I might open this to the floor. Most of the trials I look at usually have a CT scan every two months, maybe three months. I feel six weeks is pretty uh, intense regimens. What are, what are the thought? What are your thoughts, lads? That seems to be a, a recurring theme with uh, trials, right? They, um, the frequency of investigations aren't always uh, things that translates to everyday practice once the uh, regimen has been a bit better understood. Exactly. And I think our patients would very much not appreciate having a CT scan every six weeks. It'd be quite harrowing. I'm not going to harp on the demographics, but majority of the patients in this trial were male, like 90% of both arms. And most were quite young, so under the age of 65. Half of the patients had loco-regional recurrence and the other half had metastatic without, with or without loco-regional recurrence. Interestingly, and this might be due to the date of the trial, only 40% had had prior chemotherapy whilst most had had prior radiotherapy, which might've been, maybe this was this, maybe this was at a time without induction chemotherapy. I'm not really sure. I, I suspect that was before the advent of induction chemotherapy, Josh. Induction chemotherapy writ large, much less in the head and neck space, is a fairly new concept. So these were probably patients coming to their respective oncologists and trial centres fairly cold and fairly chemo-naive. Chemo yeah, that's a very good point, Michael. Fairly cold. Um, when, when we talk about compliance, I hate the word compliance, but they've used this in this trial, we prefer the term adherence. Median duration of treatment on cetuximab was 18 weeks. So that's only four and a half months, so pretty short time period. And median duration of the other treatments include cisplatin, which was 15 weeks, and fluorouracil, which was 17 weeks. Interestingly, this did confer an overall survival benefit with a median overall survival in the cetuximab arm being 10.1 months versus the control purely chemo arm of 7.4 months. That gave us a hazard ratio for death of 0.8, with a p-value of 0.04. Median follow-up for this trial was about 19 months in the Cetux group and 18.2 months in the chemotherapy group alone. Interestingly, disease control, which is what they were looking at, was 81% in the intervention arm versus 60% in the control arm. So you definitely got some more disease control using the addition of cetuximab versus standard chemotherapy. But alas, like many of these hard-to-treat cancers, duration of response was quite short, with the cetuximab arm being 5.6 months and the platinum fluorouracil arm being 4.7 months. Again, a hazard ratio of 0.76, but it was not statistically significant in this trial. A couple other pertinent points is that there was no difference in survival in the patients with metastases or recurrence and metastatic disease and those with only recurrent local regional disease. There was also no significant association between rash expression and survival benefit. That is something that's quite interesting, Josh, because it's almost a foundational point of any other area in which cetuximab is used that if you have... or not just cetuximab, but other EGFR inhibitors as well, that if you have an acneiform rash, this is what we tell patients all the time, that just means the treatment is working. And so it's actually a good thing that you've got a horrible rash that's covering most of your body. Um, but it's not the case in head and neck cancer. Is that what the trial is saying? 
Well, that's what they've made it made their some or they've they've asserted in their sort of discussion points, which is quite interesting. I mean, they're right in saying you know they've done an analysis. The hazard ratio for death was zero point seven seven, but was not statistically significant. When we come to progression free survival, this was a pretty good number. So this had a hazard ratio of zero point five four, with a p value of zero point zero one. So that's quite good. And if you look at the lovely um forest plot here, we can see there's overall pretty good benefit. We can definitely see those with oral cavity primary tumor sites did much better than the oropharynx and larynx. And realistically, those that had a high EGFR detectable cells did better than those with lower EGFR detectable cells, as expected, given the fact that if you've got the receptor, you're more likely to respond to the treatment paradigm we give you. One thing to note is that cisplatin was statistically significant for a benefit, but carboplatin did not show it, although the numbers were quite different. So you had 140 in the carbo and approximately 284 in the cisplatin. Um, I think the only other things I would like to mention from this trial is the toxicity profile. We, we promised previously that we wouldn't harp on toxicity, but here I am, um, Andrew and Michael harping on toxicity. And Michael already brought this up, but rash is one of those things that you can almost expect when you're on an EGFR inhibitor, irrelevant of which kind of, I guess, cancer treatment modality you're going on. With this particular case, grade three or four rashes was about 20%. And I might put it to the floor again. What's your drug of choice to manage acneform type rashes in an EGFR mutant population or EGFR sort of, I guess, treated population? I think Josh is just trying to get me to be different because we discussed this before starting recording <laughs> and both Josh and Andrew spoke uh, or both Josh and Andrew said that they use doxycycline and I was standing all by myself in the corner of shame because I'm the only one that routinely uses minocycline. I've seen both. There's no shame. Yes, as long a... as the rash improves. This is a safe space, Michael. So, uh, But it's always nice to have two versus one, I've got to say. Well, other, well now other... we actually can have a majority on our, all of our disagreements. <laughs> That's it, and I love to win. So... Minocycline, doxycycline, it doesn't really matter. I think I've seen administration of these preventative measures done differently. Some people wait to give. Most of the specialists I've worked with would give it prophylactically at the start of someone's treatment to reduce the risk of an acne form rash occurring. I have seen people who've had to delay treatment in the context of these rashes becoming quite bad. And of course, avoid any of the acidic type face washes in this context. It doesn't do well with an acne form type rash. Other toxins include really myelosuppression type side effects and low magnesium. So I think um, to summarize my talk in three sentences or less is that the addition of cetuximab was associated with a 2.7 month increase in the median survival and a significant 20% reduction in the relative risk of death compared to the pure platinum fluorouracil chemotherapy alone. With a 2.3-month prolongation of progression-free survival and an 83% increase in the response rate and a 41% in reduction in the risk to treatment failure, at the time in 2008, this was a pretty good trial and actually showed some very promising results in a notoriously difficult constellation of diseases, as Andrew so kindly put, that 
while heterogeneous in their entirety are very much treated as one. So that summarizes my discussion point. Any any questions from uh, from the team? I uh, I know you've mentioned this a little bit already. Just uh, I think you were alluding to the uh, subgroup analysis, the forest plot, when you mentioned the cisplatin and carboplatin. Um, do you have any thoughts specifically about um, the use of either or platinum drug? Uh, because it seems like you had the freedom to pick uh, with the extreme regimen. It's it's very interesting, Andrew. I don't have, I guess, a rationale as to why this specific treatment showed such, I guess, different results. My thought process is maybe when they were looking at the comorbidity profile, maybe the Konofsky score, maybe renal function or something to that effect they've gone with carboplatin so inherently that might be a subset of patients who are not as robust as the cisplatin arm but maybe also when we look at sort of the local head and neck versus the metastatic head and neck maybe the morphology and i guess the the specific um mechanisms of response to treatment change in this setting but i, I don't really have a specific answer as why there's such a massive gap. The other thing as well, um, Andrew, an interesting point you made before was a significant proportion of these patients are diagnosed de novo metastatic, but a lot of patients in practical settings do come early and then recur in that they are initially diagnosed with locally advanced disease or even disease that is significantly advanced with nodal involvement so can be stage three or you know even technically classified as stage four by the AJCC but it's resectable and these studies all mandate that the chemotherapy these studies all mandate that the cancer cannot be amenable to local regional resection or local therapies it can't be treated as a it can't be treated with curative intent. So a lot of these patients are coming to us already having had cisplatin in the form of chemoradiotherapy. And stacking cisplatin on top of more cisplatin, especially when at this point you're dealing with predominantly maximising quality of life in addition to quantity, but you don't want to cause people to have tinnitus, peripheral neuropathy and uh, nephrotoxicity. Uh, potentially even less in this cohort compared to the curative cohort because their time is short. It is an interesting point you raise, Michael, with regards to, I guess, flogging almost flogging a dead horse with the same drug when you know there's probably some inherent resistance. In this specific trial, it might be a tiny bit more complex as only 40% of patients had previously received any form of systemic therapy. So I can't answer that component to it. So... There might be some other underlying mechanisms, maybe even synergy between cisplatin and fluorouracil, maybe cetuximab. I, I'm not exactly sure. You also said that this is a fairly old study, so the yeah the mechanisms of of uh, chemoradiotherapy, the speciality, the the volume of experience with surgery might not have crystallized as much in 2008 uh, compared to now. So we are much more aggr- We maybe I mean. None of us were practicing in 2008, uh, but we may be more 
aggressive and more confident in our surgical management. So we're able to manage more advanced treatment. So we're able to manage more advanced cancer surgically. We know, as we said in our last episode, the ins and outs of chemoradiotherapy with cisplatin. And so a greater proportion of patients now are sort of coming to us pre-treated and recurrent as opposed to de novo metastatic. A lot can change in 15 years is what I'm saying. Very, very true. Um, That's a great point, Michael. Um, Why don't we maybe move on to your article because I think it's probably far more relevant in the contemporary era of immunotherapy and you can enlighten us on another blockbuster keynote episode. It's always the way, isn't it? When in doubt, throw immunotherapy at a problem. This is the way. (laughs) As you can tell. Well, that's not going to date the episode at all, Josh, but as you can tell, someone's been making the most of his Disney Plus uh, subscription. Um, But yes, so up to this point, so we are moving forward from the halcyon days of 2008 and uh, advancing to the late 2010s, 2019. Immunotherapy is well established uh, across oncology as a whole, uh, but there has been not that many applications in the certainly in the first line setting in the head and neck uh, in the head and neck cancer space. The standard first-line therapy for recurrent to metastatic disease up until the time of publication of Keynote 048, title drop, was platinum plus 5-FU chemotherapy plus cetuximab, as Josh has said. There was evidence for IO monotherapy with either pembrolizumab or nivolumab, and I think in our discussion points later we'll talk about where nivolumab fits into this whole messy picture. But the studies... uh, the but the Checkmate 141 study and the Keynote 012 study both demonstrated benefit for IO monotherapy after recurrence with chemotherapy. And so some bright spark, as there are many bright sparks in oncology, but some, some bright spark said, well, we've got a good IO treatment, we've got a good chemo treatment, why don't we just mash them together? The actual scientific rationale for this, it wasn't just sort of one treatment A, treatment B, smash. Um, But it was that chemotherapy may disrupt tumour architecture and reduce immune exclusion. And what we mean by that is it uh, might facilitate the insertion, the military-like insertion of uh, immune cells into the cancer milieu um, and also increase the rate of antigen shedding and induce rapid disease control, basically by giving the immune system more material to work with in its ongoing quest to recognise that cancer doesn't bloody belong. So this was a randomised open-label phase 3 study, and it enrolled 882 patients, and here makes no difference, 900. Patients to qualify had to be greater than 18 years old, as they always are. They had to have pathologically confirmed SCC of the oropharynx, oral cavity, oral cavity, hypopharynx, or larynx. So much like Andrew said at the start, the salivary gland tumours get uh, get left out in the rain, as they frequently do with these sorts of studies, and that's a whole other top, uh, topic to discuss later. Um, 
patients had to have recurrent or metastatic disease that was deemed non-curable by local therapy. They had to have an ECOG performance status of 0 to 1. And they had to have known P16 expression. And that doesn't necessarily mean they had to be P16 positive, but they had to have data on their P16 status. Patients were randomised 1 to 1 to 1. So this is another one of those multi-arm studies to receive chemotherapy plus cetuximab, that's our control group as per the extreme trial, pembrolizumab alone, or chemotherapy plus pembro. And the chemotherapy is a, is a platinum drug plus 5-FU. There was a 60-40 split between carboplatin and cisplatin respectively. I think, again, mirroring that move away from cisplatin, particularly in the palliative sense that we've seen in multiple other tumor streams as well. The primary endpoints were overall and progression-free survival, and they had a whole slew of secondary endpoints, including safety and tolerability, overall response rate, PFS rates at 6 and 12 months, changes from baseline quality of life, time to deterioration of quality of life, pain, and swallowing. Uh, we won't harp on uh, too much about the demographic data, but much like many of our other head and neck studies, the majority of patients were male and ECOG performance status of 1. The initial publication mentioned the tumor expression of PDL1, but interestingly, in the in the 2009 paper, more than 75% of patients had a PDL1 expression of less than 50%. As we've said in the past, the TPS, that's the tumor expression score, is different to the CPS, which is the combined progression score. And it seems like the idea of using TPS as a marker has fallen by the wayside because all results and subsequent publications have relied exclusively on CPS. I think Michael was referring to the 2019 paper, uh, just as a point of clarification, rather than the 2009 paper. Oh, yes. Uh, to, uh, <laughs> apologies. To, uh, if there was a 2009 paper, it would be done by a time-travelling oncologist, and unfortunately there hasn't been a a TV show about one of those yet. Maybe it's just Australia's a bit behind in the times. Probably. But no, we're not. We are very much up there. Up there in a solid mid-range, mid-tier in terms of... We'll, we'll edit this out. Um, so let's get down to brass tacks, as I always say, with the results. So the median duration of follow-up was 11 and a half months. And to cut a story short... Pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy significantly improved overall survival versus chemotherapy plus cetuximab, pretty much across the board. So in patients with a CPS greater than or equal to 20, the median uh, overall survival was 14.7 versus 11 months with a hazard ratio of 0.6. In CPS, in patients with a CPS score of greater than or equal to 1, the overall survival was 13 and a half months versus 10 and a half months with a hazard ratio of 0.65. And in the total population, clumping everyone together, including the patients with a CPS score of less than 1%, the uh, survival with chemo plus Pembro was 13 months versus 10.7 months with a hazard ratio of 0.77. So you can see the law of diminishing returns there, but chemo plus Pembro is better across the board. In terms of PFS, Chemotherapy plus Pembro was better to a vanishingly small degree, um, the less CPS uh, score. To a vanishingly small degree, the lower the average CPS score. To contrast, and 
to avoid throwing too many numbers around, I won't do every subgroup, but in the patients with a CPS score of greater than or equal to 20, the hazard ratio was 0.76. In the total population, it was 0.92. Uh, overall response rates were better with the chemo plus Pembro versus chemo plus Cetux in patients with a CPS score of greater than 20 and greater than 1, but were not statistically significantly better in uh, patients uh, in the overall population. And so we come to the Pembro alone arm, which did not significantly improve overall survival versus chemo plus atox in the overall population. The hazard ratio was 0.83. Numerically, the difference is tiny, 11.5 versus 10.7 months. And the p-value wasn't significant at 0.01. Because um, they had 14 different primary questions... To maintain a, a one-sided alpha of um, what was it, 0. 0.05, um, they had to subdivide that alpha oh, into course, a number yeah. of different points, and and it almost seems arbitrary. But um, to reach statistical significance, um, they had these very tiny p-values that they had to reach. And so, even with a p-value of zero point zero one, it's still deemed statistically not statistically significant. I'd have to look back at the trial paper, but um, that would be my guess as to why they deemed that not statistically significant. But you're right, clinically, like um, one month isn't all that meaningful for a median overall survival, but um, we can talk later about how median overall survival is not that relevant in immunotherapy trials. We've talked about um, both statistical and clinical significance, and this is one of those things where even if it's not statistically significant through statistical mathematical wizardry, um, it's almost certainly not clinically significant. The progression-free survival hazard ratio was 1.29 in the total population. The overall response rate was 16.9 versus 36%. And the duration of... But the duration of response was significantly longer in the Pembro arm, uh, 22.6 versus four and a half months. However, again... This is very much a nitty-gritty study. Pembro alone did prolong overall survival in patients with a CPS greater than or equal to 20 and greater than or equal to 1. So, again, the overall survival in patients with a CPS score of greater than 20 was 14.9 months versus 10.8 months with a hazard ratio of 0.61. And in patients with a CPS of greater than or equal to 1%, the overall survival was 12.3 versus 10.4 months with a hazard ratio of 0.74. So again, it's that spectrum of survival outcomes. We can probably extrapolate, knowing what we know with lung cancer, that patients with higher CPS scores are going to, are going to have a higher probability of doing very well, but patients with lower CPS scores are more likely to not derive as great a benefit from pembrolizumab by itself. In terms of adverse event rates, all-cause grade 3 to 5 adverse event rates were significantly higher in the Pembro plus chemo and the extreme uh, regimen arms compared to pembrolizumab alone. And one last little tidbit that I thought was quite interesting was the subsequent therapy data. So in addition to, as, as Andrew said, there were about 15 different questions that they were asking in this trial. So if they had been... Uh, uh, if the study had been run by the people who do Stampede, we probably would have got 15 individual trials. But um, they did look at subsequent therapies. And so they looked at patients who got 
one or more subsequent therapies after progressing on their trial regimen. And it hovered around the 50% mark. So Pembro alone patients uh, in the Pembro alone arm, 49.8% of patients had one or more subsequent lines of therapy. In the Cetux plus chemo arm, 53% of patients had uh, one or more lines of therapy. And in the Pembro plus chemo arm, 42% of patients had one or more therapies. The PFS2 was longer for patients in the Pembro alone arm if they had a CPS score of greater than 20 or greater than 1, but not in the overall population. But it was longer for patients in all populations in the Pembro plus chemo arm versus the chemo plus Cetux arm. So taking all of this away, so putting this all together... Um, Pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy with a platinum plus 5-FU has become a standard of care in the treatment of advanced head and neck squamous cell cancer. It is approved under the PBS, uh, either by itself if you have a high enough CPS score or in combination with chemo at any CPS, and has really supplanted cetuximab and pushed it back to sort of a subsequent line of therapy. But obviously, there are lots of uh, smaller, finer details that one has to think about before committing to this sort of before committing to this regimen, as the benefit does appear to be proportional with the CPS score. So, sending off a CPS score with your new patients is of critical importance when you're going to counsel them. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, that was beautifully presented. Just a, a few questions. Um which I think might help us understand the data here, because um, if you look at the response rates, um, the PFS and the OFs, um, particularly the caplet curves, they don't behave the same way as they did in the extreme. But something that they mentioned in the trial, the um, median progression-free survival time seemed to be quite poor, uh, which is in keeping with um, other head and neck uh, data. For Pembro alone, it's somewhere in the order of three months uh, for the median PFS. For Pembro with chemo, it's about five months, and for cetuximab, it's about five months. But clearly, the overall survival data uh, um, it is uh, not in keeping with that uh, difference in uh, median PFS. And can you give some idea as to why that might be the case? As you said, Andrew, I mean, I'll be honest, when I was looking at the survival curves, particularly the uh, non-final survival curves in the original publication, which is from 2019, not 2009, um, I had flashbacks to the early immunotherapy studies in lung cancer because the morphology is virtually identical. You could probably extrapolate it to a lot of the renal cell uh, ones as well, but Basically, what we're seeing is there is a subset of patients with uh, who receive immunotherapy by itself, and they do not do well in the first couple of months. So there is an absolute, an absolutely precipitous drop, particularly in PFS, for patients in the first couple of months, and the uh, curve is actually inferior to cetuximab chemotherapy. Um, over that first, uh, over those initial months. The rationale behind this, at least what I frequently tell patients, is that immunotherapy does take a bit of time to get going, whereas chemotherapy, because it's directly cytotoxic, 
works pretty much instantly. But if you're one of these patients who doesn't progress, and I guess we're seeing this by the disconnect between uh, PFS and OS, even if you are a patient who quote-unquote progresses, you still have a decent chance of having long-term disease control. And I guess, I guess at the end of the day, that's what any of these palliative treatments is about, is long-term disease control as opposed to, um, you know, curing or having rapid response rates. Because if you can control the disease for a long period of time, then patients can continue with their lives. That's really nicely put, Michael. Um, I think for people who aren't that familiar with Kaplan-Meier curves, just to kind of clarify when one runs above the other, but essentially, as Mikey said, that in the first couple of months, the combined therapy people actually do worse because of that time to response. And so that's why the addition of chemotherapy does work better. Um, but what you see on the graphs is that there's kind of this crossover mark where essentially what looked worse initially is actually better in the longer term. And I think something else to highlight is when you follow people up. So when we look at this, there's always this little number down the bottom of most of the Kaplan-Meier curves called number at risk. And I've been caught out by this before when I'm like, oh yeah, you know, this is a wonderful trial. There's 80% response rates and there's two people that are kind of responding. But what you can actually see, number at risk reflects the number of people who I guess are still alive or are still kind of on that follow-up paradigm. So what we can see is even at that 40 month mark, when you look at some of the Kaplan-Meier curves, you'll have let's say 40 people in one of the arms and maybe 16 people in another. And now, yes, it's not as high as the initial numbers, but there's still a significant number of people who have that durable response Michael was alluding to. And the other thing as well, and you, um, while we're playing a game of illusion, Josh, you alluded to this <laughs> in your last um, spiel there, is that the addition of chemotherapy really does seem to obliterate a lot of that inferiority in the progression-free survival in those first few months. And again, it's because you're adding a directly cytotoxic regimen to uh, the immunotherapy. So, and we see this in a lot of other regimens. We've talked about it on the show previously. If you need a rapid response, if for whatever reason someone is imminently at risk of deteriorating and in the head and neck space unfortunately a lot of that is due to sort of airway compromise i've seen that a couple of times already this year you generally don't faff around with immunotherapy by itself because by the time the immunotherapy starts working it's entirely possible the patient has deteriorated or has died and so you give chemotherapy but what this study is showing is that you can sort of have your cake and eat it too with the combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy, you're giving them the best chance to live through those first few critical months after the diagnosis of recurrent or metastatic disease. But you're also giving them, particularly if their CPS is higher, a longer, a chance to have a long-term response. And I guess the other thing as well, as I mentioned in the sort of basic sciences component of the talk, is that there is a theory that adding chemo to immunotherapy gives the immune system more to work with because it's destroying the cancer directly and providing the body with more antigenic material with which it can use to recognize the uh, cancer as non-self. Now, that's 
a theory in this particular space, but it's sort of a widely accepted theory um, as to why not just in head and neck cancer, but across multiple tumor streams, the addition of a cytotoxic agent, whether that be chemotherapy or a TKI to immunotherapy, appears to be better both in the short and long term compared to chemotherapy or immunotherapy alone. Thanks, Michael. Um, I've got uh, two more questions um, of uh, practical importance to those uh, in Australia. The first being, um, well, we've, we've got this data that shows that immunotherapy, namely pembrolizumab in this keynote trial, has efficacy. Uh, but in this trial, they didn't directly compare uh, pembrolizumab with pembrolizumab combined with chemotherapy. And, and any sort of guesses that we make are, um, well, there's, there's no, the trial itself wasn't powered to show a difference, even if we do try and compare Kaplan-Meier curves and other things. Um, so with that in mind, what are your thoughts on how we might utilize this data um, in the Australian setting? And what does the PBS say about what we what we have um, reimbursement for? That's a really important question, Andrew. And it's one that I didn't actually mention is that even though there were three arms in this study, much like your Empower 150s, your Checkmate 649s and 648s, they weren't comparing each arm to each other. So the only comparisons were with the two arms with immunotherapy, both individually against the chemocytox arm. There was no comparison between Pembro alone and Pembro plus chemo. In an Australian setting, because obviously that's where we work and that's uh, where our knowledge of the health system is greatest, um, you are allowed to access Pembrolizumab in the first-line setting by itself if you have a CPS score of greater than 20. Um, or at any CPS score in combination with chemotherapy. And the main caveat to that is that patients can't have recurred within six months of local uh, local therapy. Um, Which leads on to my next question. Well, if you can't use Pembro for those patients, um, they've had systemic therapy and their cancer's progressed within six months, um, what option do they have? So this is where you could theoretically still use the extreme regimen against which the chemo IO was compared. As we said, it has been sort of shunted to the back row with uh, the keynote trial, but it's still a pretty good regimen, all things considered, and there is obviously a dearth of uh, other options aside from these two. Really, the only thing I've seen used in the clinical space is gemcitabine-based regimens, and they tend to be held very much when all hope is lost of any sort of prolonged outcome. So if a patient does not have a high enough CPS to access immunotherapy in the first line, uh, carbo or cis plus 5-FU plus cetuximab is an option. Now, in Australia, we also have access to Nevo in the second line, and that's based on the aforementioned Checkmate 141. And this study did demonstrate that patients um, with, uh, again, with a slightly elevated PDL1 had a benefit after, after progression with first-line cytotoxic chemotherapy. Now, the caveat to this is that patients with a, without a significant PDL1 expression, with PDL1 of less than 1%, did not appear to show a survival benefit. So, even though they've had the best treatment up front, um, there is, if you can't access 
Pembroke for reasons of CPS in the first line. You can access it in the second line, but it is still less likely to have a benefit than patients with an with a higher CPS. And whilst we are not working in other countries as of yet, um, just for our overseas listeners, the, the FDA has also approved pembrolizumab for first-line treatment for head and neck squamous cell carcinomas, and the indications are exactly the same. So it was approved for use in combination with platinum and fluorouracil for all patients, and as a single agent for patients whose tumor expression PDL1 combined positive score, so CPS, is greater than or equal to 1. So I guess if we're putting it in terms of other tumor streams that may be more familiar to our listeners, as we so frequently do, pembrolizumab in the head and neck space is not like gastric or lung cancer, where regardless of the PD-L1 expression, you can sort of throw pembrolizumab with or without combination of chemo. You do have to be quite a bit more selective. Just one more thing to add. Um, as per PBS criteria for nivolumab, you can use it if the patient has progressed within six months of the last dose of prior platinum-based therapy. One point on the exclusion criteria for Keynote 048 is that the patients couldn't have progressed within six months of receiving treatment in the locally advanced setting. Because, of course, this uh, the Keynote trial mandated the pembrolizumab or the, the trial treatment being given um, in the first line setting for recurrent or metastatic disease. But if you had treatment in the locally advanced setting when you were um, potentially using it as curative intent treatment, but you had your cancer progress within six months, you can't uh, by PBS use pembrolizumab regardless of whatever your CPS score is. Uh, so that's when Nevo um, has some utility as well. Which I guess sort of makes sense on some level, but it it is something that we come up against, especially when a patient has a high CPS, because at this point, there's no data that I'm aware of, at least for the use of immunotherapy in the early setting. There might be some emerging stuff. I think I saw an article about that just this week. It's not common practice. It's not commonly used in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting. So patients with a high CPS, they wouldn't have, in Australia at least, had the opportunity to use immunotherapy. Sometimes you do have to wait, and it's a bit frustrating, but you do have to wait and give patients what very well may be an inferior treatment before going on to the immunotherapy. Guys, I think that was quite the riveting discussion today, looking across a couple of decades of development when it comes to the head and neck space. We've explored the extreme protocol and the advent of cetuximab in the head and neck space, showing improved overall survival and progression-free survival, but now it has been dethroned once again by pembrolizumab. And of course, in the second line setting, if you can't use pembrolizumab, there's always nivolumab. And if you have had pembro in the first line setting, I guess you can always go to a cetuximab-containing regimen. You can even use cetuximab by itself. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, Josh, and thanks, Andrew, for providing an absolute tour de force on the uh, first-line management of advanced head and neck cancer. Next week, we will be discussing the utility of chemotherapy in potentially resectable oligometastatic colorectal cancer. That's a very juicy topic, Josh. We really hope that you'll tune in for that one. I'm Michael, he's Josh, and he's Andrew. We'll see you next week. Bye.